Hey awesome nerds and welcome to another episode of D&D and TV where myself, your host Jeremy Vine, talks with a friend about TV that we really enjoy. Uh, today I'm joined by my good friend Mike. Oh, oh, is that what we're doing today? Oh, hi. G'day. Hi, hey, everybody. Um, I'm Mike. What are we doing again? Yeah, we're doing this episode of Invincible Season 1, Episode 4, Neil Armstrong, Eat Your Heart Out. It's one of the... Well, I wouldn't say it's the best, but it's definitely an episode that occurred in this season. <laughs> it sure was. It, there was definitely an episode, and it definitely happened in this season. You're spitting facts right there. Speaking about spitting something, we're going to be spitting spoilers for this cartoon. Not the comics, which far extend beyond the timeline of the cartoon thus far. Uh, but we're going to be talking about all sorts of things that happen in this cartoon. So spoiler alert. Yes, we'll be talking about what's already happened and what's coming up because it's only eight episodes and this means we're up to the halfway mark of season one. So yeah, we're nearly there. All the plots are starting to come together. It's um, There's not really all that much to spoil in this show, is there? It's Nolan is a bad guy. It, the the Superman XB just fucking murders people and that's kind of it. That's that's the big reveal for most people. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like those old school uh, murder mystery or detective TV shows like, you know, um, Magnum P.I. and all those ones where, you know, they show you who... Or Columbo. Or Columbo, you know, they show you who did the crime in the start. They showed you how they did it. They showed you who it was. And then, like, you know, throughout the entire episode, it's just about waiting to see all the other characters that are unawares, like, throughout the episode, uh, slowly, slowly put the pieces together and finally pin the tail on the right donkey, you know? I have a theory about that, and I'm not sure how accurate it is. There was a thing in movies, certainly, called the Hayes Code, which was around for quite a while. And one of the things in the Hayes Code was that you couldn't see somebody who committed crimes or acts of violence prosper and get away with it at the end of the end of the movie because they didn't want copycats and imitators. And I'm wondering whether this whole aspect of we see the crime committed at the start of the show and then it's about the detective figuring it out and following the clues means they always catch the bad guy. Whereas now, when you don't know who it is, it can be a little bit more ambiguous that we don't know if the bad guy got away or not because, as far as we know, the case is all wrapped up and closed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we can put a lot of that, and I'm, and I'm sure this is not the only contributing show, but I think Law and Order, um, you know, the original, not not SVU or Criminal Minds or any, any ones of those like, like that, uh, criminal Intent, sorry, which is what was the spin-off. But in the original Law and Order, where it was all about the police work in the court case and nothing else, uh, there was indeed a... Um, obviously, you know, you, you never saw who did the crime, you know. You came along, you, you come into the, the episode, the discovery of the crime scene, and then the police come and do their investigative work, and then they hand over all the evidence to the lawyers... And then the prosecutors have to go and argue the case in court, and then the court find, and then the court, either judge or jury, uh, come to their verdict, and that's the end. Like in ninety nine percent of the episodes, there was no confession or anything like that. You know, the uh, the defendant was always, you know, trying to prove or argue their innocence. You know, get off from the uh, the charge. Uh, but in ninety nine percent of those episodes, it was proven in a court of law, uh, but it was still a bit ambiguous because. Sure, the case got proven beyond a reasonable doubt, but there was no confession. There was still someone that was arguing that, no, you got it wrong, I'm not the person that did it. And uh, that was really interesting, the way they did that. Yeah, and particularly that you only ever got their side of the story. That's, uh, or the, I guess, 
I should say, you only get the prosecution side of the story because you have the people collecting the evidence and then you have the people trying the evidence. And it's really, well, that's all you get. You get to see the evidence that they're producing. You don't know what's going on with that person. You don't see them in their everyday life. That's, um, wow, I had not thought about law and order being that crucial, that vital, that um, important to the way television was structured. And now I'm going to have to go and think about some stuff for a while. Oh, yeah. And if you look at at almost every single actor and actress in the Western world out there in these days um, has a credit of being a um, an extra or a guest episode or a guest actor in an episode of one of the Law and Order shows or a corpse. Um, Law and Order was very, very important for um, for for Western cinema in general, I reckon, for a lot of reasons. Uh, I still remember, like you know, like the you know the the instances where you know a particularly uh, gripping episode would be watched in my household as I was growing up, and um, it would be incredibly ambiguous and like you know it would be one of those fifty-fifty kind of cases where you just didn't know, and then you know the, the you know the court would be like you know we find the defendant not guilty you know because not proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And the uh, the camera would focus on the defendant's face, and the defendant would be breathe, breathe a big sigh of relief and go to leave the courtroom. And then my mum would just point at the TV and she'd be like, "I reckon he did it." I was like, "Just just relax. No crime was actually committed. It's a show. Like you know, this is the extent of the reality. In that you know, it, it's done." <laughs> but she was like, "No, he did it. I can see it in his eyes." <laughs> All cases and people are fictional. These are just the stories of the people who try them. Dong dong. Uh, um, do you get the feeling? What a tangent! Yeah, do you get the feeling we're trying to avoid talking about this episode of Invincible. A little bit, a little bit. No, we... but you know, let's let's rip the bandaid off. Yeah, let, let's get into it. So, okay, so this is episode four. Neil Armstrong, eat your heart out. I remember this storyline in the comics and absolutely loved it. So I was actually really looking forward to the episode. The episode it's directed by Jeff Allen. Uh, it's written by Ryan Ridley, as well as all the people that worked on the Invincible comic book. But this is the episode. This is the synopsis coming from IMDb. It's two firsts for Mark, a first date and a first trip to another planet. At the same time, Nolan and Debbie revisit their first own first vacation together. It's like, that's cool. Yep. Awesome. That sounds like a soap opera. And they managed to make 19 fucking scenes yeah. out of that very short synopsis. Dragging that whole thing out to 40 minutes was pretty impressive. There's other stuff going on too. It's not just this, but yeah. it does feel like a padder episode. Yeah. I feel like maybe I was being a little bit unfair about the way I said that. The way I said that's kind of like they took the synopsis and made an episode out of it. No, it was the other way around. Yeah. The people watched the episode and then made a synopsis. That's that's kind of how that worked. But they watched 19 scenes and I feel like a lot of ground was covered, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more that goes into it than uh, what was in that IMDb synopsis, I think. That is very true. There's a whole bunch of, well, there's a whole scene at the start of the episode that just doesn't even get a look in. Uh, it probably doesn't even need to be in the episode, if to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. So we start with a scene very reminiscent of another opening scene in a very, very, very popular Disney movie set in the Egyptian desert. Are you talking about the mummy? I'm talking about Aladdin. Oh, <laughs> that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, especially the fact they're both being cartoons, because, you know, um, morally, I still reject the existence of a live-action Aladdin. Okay, look, it's not that bad. subjective. It's not that bad. It doesn't have... I mean, I love Will Smith. I love Will Smith. I love him. I love his movies. It's a Guy Ritchie movie. I love everything about him. But, I mean, it's Aladdin without Robin Williams, may he rest in peace, as the genie. And nothing will ever... Nothing and nobody will ever match up to Robert Williams as the genie. That's fair. I will give you that. There was, uh, again, we are trying to distract ourselves from talking about this episode um, <laughs> because it is, I, I, rewatching it again for this podcast, I did find it a chore to get through. I love the show. I just found this episode being like, yeah, all right. Yeah, I guess that keeps happening. Cool. And which is funny because, like I said, I loved this storyline in the comics. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was one. This was kind of the thing that was like, yeah, this is keeping me reading the book. It's great time yeah. humor, and it's really well paced. But overall, the the episode does not hold up, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, that resonates. I think that there were a few moments in this episode where I found myself kind of perking up a bit or, you know, sitting up a little bit in my chair when I saw a particular character come on screen um, or a particular scene shift happen. And you don't really realise it until it happens, but when you realise that you all of a sudden are interested in what's going on in the screen again, then then you kind of realise that what was happening before just wasn't um, living up to the living up to what you were expecting. And yeah. uh, there were certainly were several moments uh, in this episode where certain characters would come on screen and I would just be like, oh, yeah, that dude. Oh, yeah, I want to see what's happening there. All right, you know, and you know, kind of get revitalized about it a little bit. I think that might be why this first scene is in there because the first scene, like you were describing, I mean, it kind of sums up the feel I have for the episode. It's, it's an opening, it's, a, I guess, a cold open because it just starts the episode out of nowhere we're just set directly into this scene and then it ends really anticlimactically and that kind of is the whole thing that we just watch over the next 40 minutes it just kind of is and we get a little bit of get a bit excited and then there's an ending and we're done yeah i mean it certainly was a very uh certainly was a very cold open because it was set in the middle of the night in the desert and as we know uh, sand just doesn't keep the heat too well. So in the middle of the night in the desert, it gets freezing, freezing cold. It does. Um, but yeah, so cold open, literally and figuratively. Um, but anyway, what we see when we fade into the episode after the, uh, you know, previously on Invincible. Yes, and but all we, that, we get a previously on. Passes. We get a previously on for the we first do. time, which is interesting because this show launched with three episodes ready to go that you just watch in quick succession. And then they started doing it week by week. So the fact that there's a previously on now goes, yeah, we know you've already watched all three episodes in a, in a binge. Now we're going to remind you of what happened last week. Importantly, yeah, because this was also one of the shows that is doing the one episode per week release feature that uh, that Amazon Prime is doing. Um, the, the pros and cons of which are another long conversation to be had some other time, but I think it worked well for this one. We'll talk about it in the, the wrap up. Yeah, so opening scene, anyway, we, we come into the desert in the middle of the night, and what we see is that uh, there's a group of uh, very sinister-looking individuals that are working on excavating something in the desert. 
um, all these individuals, you know, um, as I as I said, they all look quite sinister and uh, foreboding. They seem to be there for nefarious purposes, uh, covered in occult tattoos of some kind of dark symbolism of some sort. So it's either a cult or a multi-level marketing meetup, one or the other. <laughs> um, but we very shortly find out that it is indeed a cult and uh, they're looking to excavate uh, some strange monster or uh, some evil entity uh, that is buried within the sands. And um, that's what the whole excavation expedition uh, seems to be all about in there. Yeah, they're after Mumra. Mumra, which I personally know nothing about, having not read the comics myself. Oh no, this isn't a comics thing. This is a Thundercats thing. Thundercats. Oh goodness. Okay, yeah. I'm really showing my um, my uncultured you swine uh, disposition here. <laughs> um, but this mummy that is buried beneath the sands, because uh, we do get a, a, a sight. You know, we do get to yeah. see what this thing looks like, and it looks like a very stereotypical evil mummy creature. You know, with the big headdress and the yep. uh, the big ornament on the chin and everything like that, lying in a sarcophagus and. Um, it's apparently very serious business. I mean, why else would an evil cult be trying to resurrect it after how many hundreds or thousands of years it might have been entombed underneath? Um, so they, they, the, you know, the the dude that's trying to resurrect it, the leader of this expedition, you know, he walks down and he's all confident and sinister and mm -hmm. he looks like he's about to become Imhotep's favourite disciple, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it uh, turns out you know, he gets, like, basically um, eaten alive or disintegrated or um, taken over by this evil mummy. And uh, then there's a sight... You see the scene of someone trying to get out of the uh, the buried passages from beneath and they're approaching the door to the, um, to the exit. But then the door just slams shut again. Yeah, the, the slab drops from the sky, burying the, the mummy again. Yeah, and I didn't really, and I'll admit freely, that I didn't quite understand what that really meant. Whether that meant the monster didn't want to be woken up. I mean, that that's a mood, right? I mean, you know, you wake yeah. up after a few thousand years to see what humanity has become in this day and age. I'd want to stay asleep too. That's fair enough, you know. But Or did they just fail uh, to properly wake him up? Did Was what we saw not the actual mummy being resurrected? Or, alternatively... Was it human error that caused the the gravestone slab to fall from where it was being airlifted away and slamming shut? I I couldn't decide on what the right answer was there. If if any were, was the right answer, there really was no right answer, and I think there are two reasons this is in there. It's in the comics and it's padding. Mm. There's just no other reason to include it because it plays no role in the episode. It plays no role in future episodes. It is just there to be there. And after it's done, we kind of cut away to Mark and Nolan flying over a desert, but we could have opened on that. We don't need to see the, yeah. the mummy beforehand. And it just feels like it just ate up five minutes of screen time. I mean, it looks pretty. Honestly, I'll say it now. This was my favorite scene in the whole episode, which is not saying much. Because it, it does feel like this is what the episode is about. You get this big buildup is anticlimactic and nothing really happens. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, a, a a bit of a grim but a very realistic takeaway uh, from yeah, this episode. I, I sure. don't mind it. It doesn't it doesn't set the plot back. 
is this the thing about yeah. this episode. It is a good episode. And as I said, it does adapt one of my favorite storylines in the comics, which is Mark going into space. Uh, yeah. Which, do, do we want to talk about Mark's storyline in this or do we want to, do we want to um, well, I think, follow um, through? And yeah, talk more well, about the just, mummy. Just to quickly highlight um, the point there, it kind of feels like this uh, the show's in a little bit of a dip. Um, you know, and I think it kind of highlights one of the struggles uh, that TV show writers and comic book writers as well, I think, you know, when they're writing long story arcs. Well, and Game Masters uh, the too, challenges, I think. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Um, game Masters that are running campaigns at the table as well um, is that obviously they've got to start the show on a high because they've got to, they've got to you know, throw the, throw the fishing line out, hook someone in. Um, and then at the end of the show as well, they also have to end with a big climax. There has to be a, a big payoff at the end of the season as well, or the end of the campaign on the tabletop game. Um, the the struggle is everything in between. Because, um, you know, it, I think that it would be really awesome. And, and uh, well, I have seen it done in tabletop games where, you know, um, it's been a thrill ride the entire way through, you know. I mean, I've definitely seen that happen on the tabletop, but I think that's because... I'm a part of it. Like I'm yeah. in there as a player, um, and you know the you know I've got that personal investment of this is me in this world, and uh, I'm emotionally invested in the outcome, and thus everything I do um, carries that sense of high stakes or um, or uh, you know um, you know if if anything goes wrong with my character, then that's my character that dies. I can never come back to yeah. it. I know that in the games that I play, there will be no resurrection of that character and coming back in a later <laughs> episode. Yeah, we know. Um, but when it comes to in a TV show or a comic book uh, that's being produced for the masses as a storytelling, nothing but, um, the challenge is trying to keep that level of engagement high uh, throughout the entirety of the series. Yeah. And not only is the challenge very high there, but I also wonder... Is it a tactic of a lot of show writers or comic book writers to deliberately simmer things down a little bit before bringing it to a boil again? Oh at yeah, the, uh, at the end or the conclusion, you know. Yeah, yeah you um, kind of, you kind of give them a little bit each time. You answer one question in each episode, and all the rest is just everyday life for for a lot of the time it's just we're moving these characters along mm. and you get to know them a bit better so when something bad happens to them down the line you are invested you feel like you know them as a friend but you you always have to kind of answer that that one question which we kind of see in this episode towards the end too but it does feel like it's just simmering along it's just those those mm. extra steps on the journey it's the kind of thing where if it was an rpg table it's the time where the the game master's gone hey could you guys role play amongst yourselves for like 20 minutes or so i've just got to write some notes mm-hmm. and you know what there is only as i reach back as far as my memory goes if if we ignore all the shows that are episodic right yeah if we ignore all those shows that are kind of like uh, monster of the week you know like yeah. ignore the x-files ignore supernatural and all those kinds of shows where the main focus really is just what's happening on any individual particular episode right but we, if we focus on the tv shows that are about telling a long story a continuing arc the whole way through is the main focus and individual episodes might add something in as a minor focus but the major focus is the story over the long not long haul 
the only TV show that I can ever remember that kind of broke from that format of start high, simmer down, and bring it up high again for the conclusion. The mm. only show that I can think of that didn't do it like that was the remade Battlestar Galactica. That's um, ooh, I would certainly the first off, season. I would say the first season, yes. Yeah, it starts off. Um, and, and this is, and, and you know, this the perspective is going to be a bit different for people who uh, can enjoy shows that induce a high level of anxiety or um, or pressure, right? Because the the show starts off um, at a simmer. Um, I mean, they're in a bad situation, but the show, the, the overall tone and the level of anxiety or pressure, kind of starts off at a simmer. Um, but it just keeps building. The pressure keeps on building and building and building through the entire season. And um, I tend to... Personally, I found that it kept building over all the seasons uh, to the point where when it reaches, you know, the, near the end of season four, it's like being in the middle of a giant overpowered pressure cooker where everything's, like, about to explode, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. So that was kind of how I felt about Battlestar Galactica. And it's the only TV show I've found that kind of broke from that uh uh broke from that um tactic of start high simmer down bring it up high again for the conclusion um that invincible season one certainly did that they started high simmered they brought it back up high yeah there was those elements of okay so in the first episode we're just having it a bit slow but then no one's going to kill everyone at the end of the first episode the second episode suddenly we've got all these doubts about what's going on the third episode we're building on those doubts this episode well, we need something. We need it's the midway point of the season. We need a bit of a not a break, not a circuit breaker, as um, as some might say. We need we need another highlight. We need something big to occur in the middle of the season to keep us interested through the next four weeks. And I don't think it delivers. It um, I mean, there is a bit of a twist. I guess there's a twist at the end, but it's not really what. It's not enough to me. Yeah, I like that we also had a tangent onto Battlestar Galactica. Just anything to stop us talking about episode four of, of Invincible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do feel like we got a bunch of breadcrumbs here. We didn't get the full breadbasket yeah. for yeah, sure. Definitely. And um, you know, I think that the first the first real breadcrumb, I think, like you know, that's worth talking about uh, would be in that second scene um, oh, yeah. where Mark and Nolan are uh, out flying, you know, Nolan's giving Mark a uh, flying lesson. And then they have a bit of a chat about, um, you know, Nolan tells Mark a little bit more about Viltramites and the mission that Viltramites um, are sent on. And I thought that was quite an interesting conversation because, you know, um, you know, Nolan really emphasises to Mark about the whole, you know, the, the thing that makes us Viltramites different mm. You know, well, first first thing that he does is he remarks because they land on Mount Everest, and the and Nola makes a remark of you know I can't f- I I always seem to forget how beautiful this planet yeah. is, even though you know in current day and age humanity seems to be doing their best to destroy it. Lucky for them they got us right. <laughs> and then he goes on to tell Mark um, a bit about Viltramite culture and history, and it's all about you know we're basically the you know the peacekeeping benev- benevolent overseers of the universe. Like for thousands of years, you know, we've been preventing wars, we've been keeping the peace, uh, we've been raising civilizations out of the mud that they were living in, 
and uh, all this sort of stuff that is so good for the universe, and thank God for the universe that they've got Viltrum and Viltrumites, right? And he clearly believes oh, what yeah, he's he saying. Oh, yeah, he believes it. Mind, body, and soul. Like, he has died in the wall. Viltrum is mm. amazing. Well, this is kind of why he's here. He has chosen to go to a, a planet where he is essentially a god and believes strongly that he is making the world better for the people below him. So that's his entire purpose. Mm. His entire reason to be on this planet is to uplift humanity. That's what he is saying to Mark here. It's like, we have a responsibility to this world. We are here because we have it really great and we should help. It's like, mm. yeah, he believes that. I don't I don't know if we want to spoil what what he really believes. Do we? Not yet, because that comes in later yeah. episodes and it'll um, be good to talk about as it unfolds, I think. But at the at the very least though, it's still this conversation at the start of the episode that he has with Mark is an interesting spotlight for the rest of his interactions throughout the episode yeah. uh, that Nolan has with other people like Debbie and Cecil and Damien Darkblood. Damien Darkblood. Damien Darkblood, voiced by the amazing Clancy Brown. Hell yeah. Um, but yeah, this episode cuts between characters a lot. Oh God, yes. Um, like, you know, 19 different scenes and every scene is, you know, cutting between um, different characters' interactions and what they're doing. So... Maybe now is a good time if we to keep it tidy if we talk about Nolan and Nolan's interactions throughout the episode. Yeah, I think we get into into Nolan's stuff first because that was one of the biggest problems I had with the episode. Just as the storyline got interesting, it would jump to something else and the pace would just drag. And I'm like, I'm just getting into this scene. And it, it kind of works as it's like we're going at the same time, we're seeing everything occur in real time. I didn't care. I just wanted the I just wanted wrapping it up. You could have gone, okay, we'll jump back to Mark now in space and we'll see his storyline. We'll go back to Nolan at the end of that. But yeah, let's talk about Nolan's scenes. Because after talking with Mark, they go back, or he goes back home. Um, well, I guess we'll talk about Debbie's storyline too. How does that sound? Because they kind of pretty interlinked with this. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to call this the domestic aspect yes. of the episode. Yes, the, the, the heavy relationship story. Side. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of starts off with what we have been talking about before, that um, that Debbie is learning about, um, I guess, the idea is that there isn't always truth in marriage, that she's talking with Olga, who was um, Joseph the Red Rush, one of the guardians of the globe's uh, ex. Well, I say ex because no one fucking killed him, uh, popped his head like a, a pimple. His... His ex is drinking heavily. She wants to leave America. She wants to go back home to Russia. And she's just saying, yep, look, they all lie. They're not actually trying to find Joseph's killer. It's his whole thing. So Debbie's getting suspicious. But in the end, she's going to help Olga save her house. Save save her house? Sell her house. That makes more sense because she's leaving. Mm. Sell her house. Uh, but when Debbie gets home and looking up houses and doing her realtor stuff online, she starts to look into Damien Darkblood, who she met last episode, and starts to look, who is this guy? What's his deal? Oh, he's not just a demon. He actually tells the truth and he fights for justice. And it's when Nolan and Mark arrive home that she hides this research on um on the demon and just goes oh no i wasn't looking at anything i was just doing some work stuff and she and nolan start talking about well the fact that um that mark's going on a date with amber and i love his line hold up 
tell me everything. It's not a date. Amber and I are just hanging out. Hanging out? Wow. Try not to sweep the girl off her feet too much. Guess where they're going? Out. Ooh, out. Every woman's favorite destination for a romantic evening. And it's just, it's such a family moment of the teen son look going, I'm not telling you where you are going on a date. They don't have to like, you approve or disapprove. Uh, but it's such a, a like a, a domestic feel, like you were saying. And Nolan has the idea, hey, maybe Debbie, maybe you and I should go out as well. We can do things. <laughs> we're, we're grownups, we're adults. We can go on dates out places. And it's actually really cute. I like it for once. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really endearing because when they're pressuring him to find out where they're going, you know, because, um, you know, Nolan will say, oh, yeah, and guess where they're going, Debbie? Out. Yeah. Link. And then, you know, Mar- and Nolan's <laughs> so just like, I mean, Mar- Mark is like, you know, I couldn't even tell you if I wanted to. I mean, Amber arranged everything tonight. She decided where we're going to go. And then um, Debbie speaks up, you know, his mum, and she's just like, ooh, a take charge kind of girl. Mm-hmm. I like her already. <laughs> and, you oh, know, Mark, and Mark's embarrassed and he runs off to his room. <laughs> yeah. 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 But we do also see um, Nolan actually goes to visit Damien Darkblood because in the scene earlier, even though in the last episode, even though Debbie didn't tell Nolan that Darkblood came to see her, he still sensed that the demon was around thanks to the cold breath, the cold air and the change in temperature. So he goes to see Darkblood and Darkblood basically just goes, yeah, I know you fucking killed the guardians, you piece of shit. Not in those so many words, but he's just like, look, there were seven people in that room. You're the only survivor. No one else was in that room. So ergo, you killed them all. Like he doesn't know why, Mm -hmm. doesn't know what happened, but he knows you did it. Yeah. And, you know, Nolan then goes and threatens Darkblood, you know, saying, if you keep pushing into this, then I'll do something. And Darkblood's like, what are you going to do? Kill me. Mm -hmm. And Nolan replies, I I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have to. Who do you think they're going to believe? Me or a demon from hell? And then Darkblood fires back with, your wife already suspects you, mate. Mm -hmm. How long do you think it's going to be until your son suspects you too? The truth will come out. And Nolan, Nolan says exactly, go fuck yourself, Dark Blood, and walks out. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because I was like, you know what? Why didn't he kill him? My, my thought plan was, why didn't he actually just go ahead and kill Damien Dark Blood? Um, but, you know, there's, there's, there's a few question marks for me there, not having read the comics. Maybe Damien Dark Blood is actually invincible, like, because he, and the only way he can, he can go back sent to hell is via some crazy mystic exorcism ritual, not foreshadowing for later in the podcast. But, um, you know, Nolan just kind of walks out, you know, after being told directly to his face by Darkblood that he's going to be exposed and that people will come to know his crime. Nolan still decides to walk out without killing um, Darkblood and keeping the the secret safe. And um, that I found a very interesting point and a big question mark, you know? Yeah, I feel that there is something about dark blood that makes him on par with with nolan and whether it's i mean the fact that he's a demon from hell and that means that hell is real and potentially god and the devil are real as well really means that maybe this is something that's a bit more powerful than nolan and he does have to step tread carefully around that he doesn't want to pick a fight with this guy because maybe 
maybe he can't be killed. Maybe killing him would just prove his point. And maybe killing him means he goes to hell and he comes back the next day. There's no real way of stopping him. Or it could be simply that he doesn't have any powers against magical people like Superman didn't used to, or still doesn't in some cases, that he's just weak against demons. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting interesting look at um, who he treats, not as equals, but certainly who he's not prepared to go toe-to-toe with. And one thing that we yeah. start to notice... He doesn't, have, uh, he doesn't have equals, he has threats yeah. to his dominance. Yeah, and he does see Dark Blood as a threat. And the fact that he kind of says, like, the the idea that Mark and Debbie will discover what he's done does feel like a threat to him. That's something that he's worried about. Mm. But he doesn't seem to care. I mean, he, the fact that he killed them all, he doesn't. he's not cared about Cecil. He's not worried about Dark Blood knowing the truth. He's worried about Mark and Debbie knowing. Mm. Um, but and it definitely sets him on edge because, like, you know, the next time we see Nolan and Debbie... Um, you know, straight away they get into an argument, like almost immediately. Um, because you know, uh, I forget what it, it what it was exactly. Um, that really set Debbie off. I can't remember the exact conversation now, but one of them says something, and it turns into Debbie telling Nolan that you know, you just keep too many secrets from me. You know, you never share anything. You've never introduced me to another Viltrumite ever. Yeah. You know, I think it's very, very clear that you are hiding things from me and uh, and I can't deal with it. Um, you know, and they so they get into an argument over it. Um, but then before they can resolve the argument, Cecil teleports into the house and uh, interrupts the conversation. I think that is telling that we're starting to see what we haven't seen in earlier episodes where that whole idea of telling truth and communicating and being honest with a partner and being honest with someone in your life is starting to come and bite Nolan in the ass. That he has lied about things. Lied about a lot of things. He's lied about killing the Guardians and Debbie is picking up on it. She's starting to realise, well, what else aren't you telling me? And starting to question a lot of the things he does because she's realised that he's lying. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's and only because this, Cecil this comes is in. Well, uh, yeah, this is well reflected um, in the tabletop games when people start passing their insight checks or yeah. other people start failing their deception checks. Um, and, you know, Cecil teleporting in and interrupting this conversation um, is kind of reminiscent of a dungeon master that might panic <laughs> when he realises that an intricately woven... Um, you know, web of deception and intrigue is about to come falling apart. Let's throw something in the mat there now to distract him and put him into a combat scenario or change the dynamic entirely yeah. and keep those secrets hidden for one more session, you know? Yeah, Cecil's really useful for that. Well, it is every yeah, time yeah. Every time something actually starts to come to a head, when somebody seems like, oh, I'm about to tell you something, the world's ending. There's a meteorite coming at Earth. Cecil shows up saying, oh, no, there's a squid monster. Oh, no, there's a fire. Superheroes are constantly having to run away and do something that means they're not able to tell the truth all the time. And in this, in this case, it kind of works that Debbie's calling him on his shit. And Cecil kind of shows up and is like, yep, you can't. I got, I got stuff to do. We got you. Got to help these marsh these astronauts go to Mars. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Nolan doesn't want to do it. No, you he know? doesn't. Nolan's more interested in doing his things there on Earth. That's his mission. He doesn't care about Mars. Yeah, he sees this um, as a PR stunt. Mark, 
Yeah, yeah. But that's when Mark comes home from his very successful date. And um, this was an interesting interaction because Mark walks in and he, you know, gets involved in the argument that's going on. You know, Cecil just straight up tells Mark, you know, there's no there's no pulling the wool over Mark's eyes here. Cecil yeah. just straight up and goes and says, hey, we've got a manned expedition going to Mars. First one ever. We need to send your dad out to go and um, protect him if anything goes wrong secretly. But he doesn't want to do it. And I don't think that's really shit. And uh, then Debbie's just like, hey, um, yeah, does kind of suck you know it's important that you know you know these humans should have protection and mark's like yeah all right i'll do it cecil's like okay you're on great nolan's like no don't you dare but then debbie mark's yeah. mum is yeah. like you know what mark you have to choose how to use your powers the way you want to use them make this decision for yourself kind of softly encouraging him to to take the mission and get out of the house for two weeks. So Mark's like, yeah, all right, I'll do it. Um, and Cecil's like, sweet, thanks. I'll be in touch shortly. Bam, teleports out again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that way of him getting in and out. Just, right, cool, I'm there now. Okay, bye. I don't use doors anymore. I'm Cecil. I'm just waiting for the uh, I'm waiting for the day or the episode where he teleports himself across a room to grab a beer out of the fridge and teleports back to the couch. He does. <laughs> I'm sure he does it all the time. Honestly, it costs three billion dollars each time he uses the teleportation. It's fine though. It's fine. Uh, okay, so Debbie having this, giving him this choice, it almost feels like an extension of the argument that she was having with Nolan of. Um, of using powers for good of being well honest as well but subtly undermining nolan's hold on mark as well that nolan has been like no no you don't get to train with the new guardians you're going to train with me and because we're the we're the ultramites we know how to train together every episode mm. of this show is about mark having to make a choice in this case it's the choice about going up and helping the space the space probe or space shuttle and giving him that choice rather than making him do what nolan says that undermines nolan's authority over him and debbie is always going to be key in that i feel yeah 100 percent. and um you know after mark goes away and you know gets himself ready to go on the mission um they're right back at it yeah. um you know nolan and debbie um are arguing again and um nolan you know in you know, in in his attempt to try and rebuff, you know, her um her accusations and exclamations, um about how how much he hides information and how he has never shared full truths with her and things like that, um he continually um he, he somehow manages to pacify her yeah uh with loving romantic attention and assurances because he's a fucking um, abuser you know, tell, yeah and he's like you know what. Mark's away for two weeks. You and I should do our own little vacation for two weeks as well. I'll take you to Europe and we'll revisit a lot of the, uh, we'll do a lot of the things that, you know, that'll remind us of why we fell in love in the first place. Yeah, I think they so recreate his first, their first date or something, their first vacation. Yeah, yeah. They, they go to Rome. Like, uh, yeah. And, and there's a fair bit of, you know, the time span of this episode is about two weeks, I think. Yeah. Oh, a little bit um, less. Because the, yeah. the Mars expedition, yeah, the Mars expedition was meant to last two weeks long. And um, I know Mark comes back a bit early, but he goes and he comes back by the time the episode ends. Um, so over these two weeks, you know, clearly, you know, Mark, uh, Nolan is doing his absolute best to wine and dine and sweep Debbie off her feet again to try and take her mind off everything that's been happening. It does. And they wind up in Rome 
and uh, he takes her to the restaurant where they had their first date or something like that. And um, they, you know, Debbie's still wise to the game, though. You know, mm. Debbie brings up, you know, things at this, um, you know, at this date. You know, she brings things up in a different, um, with a different disposition, you know, as yeah. opposed to, you know, being on the attack and accusing and whatnot. She goes a bit more diplomatic. And she does say that, you know, it's important that we, you know, we, we talk about our feelings and, you know, the, you know, the, this is how I feel when I know that things are being kept from me and blah, blah, blah. So no one comes up with a lie to explain everything. Is it a lie, though? Because clearly had enough time to think about it. Um, it is a lie by omission. Yeah, which is still a lie. Um, but it's like, I, yeah, it's, oh, it's so fucking, everything he does in this scene is so fucking creepy. I loathe him yeah. in this scene. Anyway. So basically, he gives her the explanation that, look, I didn't do it. I didn't do anything. I didn't kill the Guardians. But Cecil thinks I did. Yeah. Purely because I'm the only surviving one there and because I'm not actually a human. Uh, he's pointing the finger at me and believes that I did it. And he's trying to do everything he can to prove that I did it, even though I didn't. And, um, you know, doesn't that suck? You know, you should pity me, Debbie, because what I'm going through is worse than what you're going through. Yeah. Woe is Nolan kind of story, right? And she seems to buy into it. Seems to, mm-hmm. you know? Not entirely certain if she actually does or not, but at least she puts the message across that she buys into it. Um, and then, you know, they're interrupted by, you know, in the distance, uh, like an oriental fantasy dragon-looking monster um, comes out of nowhere and starts attacking the town of Rome or city of Rome. And um, Debbie's just like, please, no, you've got to stop it. And Nolan's like, no, 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 no. I want to hear, I want to hear you say that you would, you believe what I said. And he just kind of sits there while this thing's he, destroying the city and might be about to kill them right behind him. And well, she's kill like, her. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, okay, I believe you. Please just do something. And he's like, nah, I'm on vacation with my wife. Cecil can take care of this one and then fighter jets come in and blow it all to hell. It's like that. It looks really cool. But when you break it down to this is a relationship and he's putting her life in danger until she does what he wants. Oh my God. Oh my God. So, so messed up. And just his, his complete calmness about it all because he knows he's going to be safe. He's a Viltrumite. He doesn't get like phased by any of this stuff. The kaiju in the last episode gave him a run for his money, but he was still just hopping about. He was quite happy after that. And this is just, oh my... And then how many people died because he was just like, no, I want to make sure my wife trusts me. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, so creepy. So creepy. I think we really get a sense of this is who Nolan is right now. If it's important to me... I'm going to do that first and everyone else, the entire world comes second after me. Oh, sure. And, oh, meanwhile, ah, ah. meanwhile, while they're off in Rome, having this lovely romantic date. Yeah. Back at their house, your boy, Damien Darkblood. Fuck yeah. Hell, um, hell beast extraordinaire. Right to, yeah. Yeah. He's gone right to the heart of the matter and he's snuck into, um, Nolan's home, Nolan and Debbie and Mark's home, and is snooping mm-hmm. around for clues. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, from what we see, it doesn't really seem that he seemed to really find anything. He just kind of walks around the house and looking at things and touching things and writing in his little notebook. And um, then eventually he's in like a linen closet or a clothing wardrobe. And uh, 
he hears from another room in the house the sound of Cecil teleporting in. Because <laughs> Cecil so doesn't even fucking knock out. anymore. Just, I'm going to teleport into yeah. Nolan's house when he's not home. Yeah, so, you know, um, Darkblood just kind of puts his notepad down um, on a shelf inside that linen cupboard, which is very important. He's leaving his notepad behind with all the clues that he's written down. And then he walks into that other room in the house to find Cecil. And, um, you know, Cecil's just like, hey, Nolan warned us about you. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, okay, right. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a very short scene that we see there. But it becomes very clear to us that, you know, Cecil has basically um, accosted um, Damien Darkblood from there. Well, maybe we, we follow that thread through because we've kind of reached the end of the Nolan Debbie arc in the episode. But the Cecil Darkblood thing kind of keeps going from there. They like picks up this thread that we've been seeing through through Nolan saying, oh, Cecil suspects me. Um, and Cecil going to Darkblood and being like, Nolan said we should be worried about you. And then takes him back to to GDA HQ. Um Mm-hmm. and basically brings him down into the basement of this secret organization under the Pentagon and takes him into, well, a summoning circle. And Yeah, like a uh, spooky, scary pentagram. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, inscribed on the floor. Yeah, and says, look, I'm just going to... Well, first they show that the the exorcism ritual that would send Damien back to hell he thought he destroyed all possible copies and Cecil's just like, yeah, we had somebody create a program that predicted what basically recreate it through an algorithm. So we now know how to send you back to hell. And I know that Nolan killed the guardians, but I don't know why. And you investigating and stirring shit up is messing up my plan. So you need to be out of the way. And mm-hmm. yeah, he, he, Sends him back to hell. He exercises him. Yeah. And um, I thought that was really, really cool. Like the way that scene played out. Um, Because it kind of answered, or it kind of half answered a couple of those questions that came to me during, you know, that Dark Blood versus Nolan confrontation where why didn't Nolan kill him? And then, you know, they have this scene and it's like, yeah, the only thing that can do you away is if somebody exercises you and sends you back to hell. Using this, using this particular ritual that, you know, nobody knows how to do, except now we do, because computers figured it out for us. So, yeah. and then Damien's like, oh, well, that's shit. I'll see you in hell, I guess. <laughs> and uh, and he gets exercised. He did not panic. Um, you know, Damien Dark, I was just like, well, this sucks. You know, I kind of wish you weren't sending me back to hell, but uh, all right, fair enough. And then he goes back to hell. And then I was just like, you know what? He didn't panic that kind of makes me think that he's got a way out. I, I think he always has a way out. Of Damien Darkblood. It's like, he's going to be down there. I feel that it's similar to what we saw in episode two with the Flaxons, that time will pass very differently in hell for Damien. Like he might be there for millennia, but for us, it's going to be 20 minutes, but he's going to be plotting that yeah. entire time. He got out once. He knows there are ways out of hell. He's not too fussed about it. I do love the little interchange between Donald and um, Cecil after they send him send him away because he kind of like explodes into this little twinkly light because of course he does and Cecil's like don't worry he's not dead just back in hell and Donald's like isn't that worse he's like yeah <laughs> he he's a demon that escaped it, from hell yeah going back is going to be worse for him than death 
Yeah, because and and that scene kind of brings back to mind several scenes from different movies for me. Um, and I'll avoid spoiling the movies because I'm happy to spoil um, Invincible for the purposes of this, you know, podcast. But I won't spoil any external movies or anything. But movies like Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell and, uh, you know, um, Ghost with, uh, you know, the old movie Ghost with Patrick Swayze and whatnot. Um, similar scenes in those movies where, you know, you see people or characters in these things uh, dragged to the most horrible version of an afterlife that there is. And uh, when, it, when it's done right, it's just like... That fucking sucks. Yeah, that's that's the scary um, thing. Well, there's a great the element of a hell is uh, is the worst thing imaginable. <laughs> like you know, there's a great element of um, well, a great scene in the Dresden Files, which is a book series. So unfortunately, we won't talk about this podcast. But there's a moment where one of the characters is near death and sees a train coming and realizes, oh, it's the southbound train. You don't want to get on that one. And even in that book where it shows up, the um, the the bad guy of the of the episode gets killed and their screams are drowned out by the sounds of a southbound train coming and it's just like they they're going to hell and that's not the one you want to get on really not that's just some, um, some other stuff about trains that I know mm-hmm. but I highly recommend uh, Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell and the Dresden Files uh, written book series and uh tv adaptation as well it's all good what i'm hearing Um, is that after we do invincible you want to be on the episodes where we talk about the dresden files possibly yeah from a personal perspective i'd rather do the books well the books are much longer i mean we still could do them but yeah maybe someday maybe as a patreon episode yeah good point let us know viewers what might be a good show slash comic book slash book series uh, you know, from the science fiction or fantasy genres, would you like us to see? Or superhero genre. It's its own genre nowadays, is a superhero movie, for sure. You can tell Mike's a streamer because he just called all our wonderful listeners viewers. But that's fine. We forgive him. <laughs> but do- I'd like to think that they're staring at the screen on Spotify for focus as they're listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> they might be. I don't judge the way people listen to podcasts. That's quite that's quite fine. But do definitely write in. Either that or um, um, or our biggest fans just have our profile photos up on their screen, just listening to our words and our calming, enthralling voices, slowly tracing a finger down the side of your face, Jeremy. That's what the viewers are doing right now. That's what you're doing right now. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, shit. I left my camera on. <laughs> you um, did. Yeah, so that's basically, that is the end of the Dark Blood interaction in this it episode. Is. In any case. It is. Um, and um, I think, well, we'll jump over to the Mark storyline. There's a small episode about, or a small little scene about the New Guardians. I'm going to call them the New Guardians because it sounds more comic booky. Um, where Cecil's in there. So I feel we just kind of cover that very quickly. That basically yeah. the whole place, this is where the Guardians were murdered. And there is still a blood stain on the wall. And Cecil's like, yeah, we didn't clean that up. So you remember what happened to the last people that lived here. Just just to keep the honest kind of stuff. And that's really creepy. It, it kind of comes into play in later episodes. So it's it's worth pointing out. But this this kind of, this episode sort of extends and continues the storyline that we saw last, last week with Mark and Amber. And the fact that he can't really mm-hmm. go on dates with her without something interrupting. Oh, and by the way, 
Um, important important part of the new Guardian scene that we saw. Oh yeah, Rex is still an asshole. And, <laughs> That's um, not changing. Robot Robot makes a point of admonishing him. Oh yeah, and after he admonishes him, he goes up and lays a hand on his shoulder. And, uh, you know, it hurts Rex when Robot lays a hand on his shoulder. He's like, ow, what the hell are you doing that for? And, you know, Robot's like, ooh, I'm sorry. I must have pinched a nerve. I always forget how soft you humans are. Did did he do the Vulcan nerve pinch? No. Because he's voiced by Zachary Quinto, who played Spock, and it all comes together. <laughs> yeah, but um, then, you know, we're, you know, hidden off camera, or not off camera, but hidden away from where any of the other Guardians can see it. You then get a little shot of um, Robot's hand, which now has a bloodied hypodermic needle poking out of it, retracting into his wrist. And you realise that, oh, he just stole some of Rex's blood. Yeah. Why would he do that? Because he's also creepy. Yeah, why would Robot be stealing his teammates' blood? Why would he be setting the Mauler twins free in a previous episode? What are you doing, Robot? You're meant to be leading the new Guardians. What's going on? We can't trust AIs. I mean, it's just just the way of the world. Mm -hmm. That's just how it rolls. But, like, yeah, let's get on That's what we get from the Guardians this episode. That's pretty much it. We see the new Guardians, and there's a there's a blood stealing thing. I mean, oh, that's not true. I mean, Rex and Monster Girl are a bit flirty, which is creepy because she's well, technically twenty four, but looks like she's twelve. And yeah, yeah, and that's basically what Robot goes and admonishes Rex about. He's just yeah. like, "Hey, man, you screw you screwed over Eve, and uh, don't diddle the young girl. Please. Yeah. please don't fuck anyone on this team like you did the last team, and fuck the whole team." So, um, yeah. and then he steals his blood, which kind of defeats the whole purpose of what he's saying. But, hmm. Yeah. But yeah, Rex, primarily still 100% dickhead, you know, walking around insulting every other member of the team again and just being a general dickhead about everything. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that he really does kind of need Mark to keep him in line. Mark really should have been on the team. But he's not. He's off in space. That's true. After a very successful date with Amber, of course. Yes, he goes on this date with Amber and they go around a food market, I believe. They're just kind of walking through the stalls and they're looking at these places because she did a, um, I think she talks about spending some time in the Philippines building houses for people. And Mark's like, oh yeah, I went to Mount Everest with my dad because Mark sucks at lying to people. He's so bad at it. Yep. It's like, yeah, I've been on Mount Everest. And they're like, oh, how long did that take you? Oh, like... I don't remember. I, I, it wasn't that long. It, it was really easy. Because you can fly, you dope. How about you? You done any traveling? Uh, well, I've been to Mount Everest. What? You're kidding. No, I uh, visited with my dad. A father-son trip thing. That's unbelievable. How did you like Nepal? Or did you go through China? Uh, wow, those are cool boxes. They're called balls. Um... And he's like, oh, that's a good question. Oh, wait, look at those things over there. Aren't they beautiful? He's so bad at this. It's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But this is the kind, This is the thing as well, that he he's going to go into space for two weeks on this space mission. He's going to go and shadow the astronauts to make sure they're all fine. Because there's Martians on Mars. The general public don't know about this, despite the fact that there was a giant martian man as part of the gladians of the globe they just maybe it was the whole martian manhunter thing it's like he's the last of his kind there aren't any martians it's fine to send people up there either way he's going away for two weeks and he goes to tell amber that he's leaving 
like 90 seconds before the space shuttle is supposed to take off. It's like he's literally leaving that moment and he goes to tell her and it's all like, hey, I got this thing for you. Um, bye. And it's, and it is a little bit like, will you wait for me for these two weeks while I'm gone? Which is a very high school thing. It's like he fully believes that she's going to forget about him and move on to someone else within two weeks when he says he's going to go build schools in Africa or something. He's like, oh yeah, I'm going to be a philanthropist like you. You inspired me. It's fine. And uh, I don't know what Amber sees in this guy. He's so flaky and such a dope. I think, um, yeah, she, she takes everything quite well and she's always incredibly forgiving and understanding. And uh, she's... Um, he's very, very lucky to have her, I think, is, uh, cause I don't think, I, I can't think of any other character in the show that would ever have that much amount of patience, like for anything or anybody, no. except for maybe his mum. Yeah, that's true. That's where, you know, she would only have that level of patience for her son, but you know. Yeah. Well, I don't know. She's got some, um, some patience for Nolan, although she wouldn't have been with him this long otherwise. Either way, going into yeah, space. Yeah, although that is beginning to uh, that's been yeah, that patience for Nolan is beginning to run short. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, he makes it to the shuttle in time. He makes it to the shuttle time, off, of course. And we get this wonderful brick joke in the first episode in the the stinger. We saw um, the immortal throw throw the guy who was planning to blow up Denver into space, and as the shuttle shuttle goes past, that guy still up there, still orbiting the Earth, all dead. I was trying to remember where he was from. It's great. Some of the jokes like that are, are wonderful. Like in the first two episodes where Mark gets his powers and throws the trash bag up, the second episode that has the opener of it landing again and nearly crushing someone. And it's just, they're willing to delay jokes like that. There's all, there's just some good stuff. Oh, as, sure. as um, Well, it's kind of a, a nothing mission for Mark because he's just kind of hanging out in this shuttle just floating through space basically until he finally gets to Mars. And he's like, great. Now I've got to hide because the astronauts aren't going to, aren't allowed to see me. Otherwise it kind of defeats the purpose of being the first manned mission, human mission to, to Mars. So I'm just going to sit around here and check things on my phone until the battery goes. And mm-hmm. that's when he realized I'm going to doze off and fall yep. asleep yep. and lose sight of the astronauts and then wake up to find that disaster has struck and the astronauts have disappeared yeah they've vanished they've been possibly dragged away there's more footprints than the astronauts could have he knows that martians live underground and usually keep to themselves so maybe it's something to do with those and he follows the footprints until they disappear in the sand and he goes well i know there's something underground so he opens it up and a fucking squid jumps on his face it's great it's so alien it's so he's so stupid i love it yeah like six or seven of these things leap out like little squid face hugger looking things with brains that are external to their bodies, um, you know, leap out and attach to him. And he freaks out and, you know, kills them all uh, yeah. as they latch onto him. And then he's like, right, okay, just going to have to be brave about it. And then he goes underground. He follows, he goes down that hatch and he uh, goes down to continue trying to find and save these astronauts. Yeah, he finds all these crystals kind of stuck to the walls. And then the crystals shift and change. And the crystals are actually covered in these squid things as well. Like there's little, well, it's kind of like starfish, I guess. And the the crystals on the walls kind of meld away. And it turns out they're actually the Martians. Like we saw Martian Man in the first episode could change his shape. This is how the Martians are standing there. Um, They 
bring out their weapons and they try to, to try to capture Mark. And he's just like, whoa, 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 I'm, I'm not here. Then one of these little starfish falls on him and he freaks out because of course he does. He just like throws it away. And the Martian's like, what you, no, wait, they don't affect you? What, what's going on here? And they're really confused. I do love, actually, this is something I don't love, I should say, because I loved it in the comic book and it doesn't really translate here that Mark goes, you speak English? Because they understand what he's saying and they're speaking English to him. And that Martians look at each other and say, we speak Martian. And it's not really covered, but the joke is that through this weird series of coincidences, Martian is exactly the same as English. Oh, wow. Okay. It's like everything about I it. I thought is it might have been... Um... I thought it might have been something like, you know how in Star Trek, all the uh, the comm badges that they wear are also built in universal translators so that anybody can speak to a Starfleet officer and it's like they're carrying on a conversation in their own native language. Yeah. I thought it might have, might, there might have been some kind of explanation similar to that. No, nothing, nothing like that. that. It's but... just this, it's specifically English. They don't speak any other Earth languages. They speak Martian, which just so happens to be the exact same language as English. And right. it's a great joke. I love that joke and that idea in the comics. It's just a really fun little thing and it gets passed over and not done properly in the show. And I'm like, this is part of why I didn't enjoy this episode as much as I could have because it takes one of my favorite stories and it's just not as good. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, there's still some good the, stuff. The entire, um, yeah, like the entire Martian encounter really uh, just kind of boils down to um, Mark meets the Emperor of Mars. Like he I'll gets point into out, the throne room of the Emperor of Mars. In a grand and, tradition of this show, he, the Emperor of Mars is voiced by Jimon Honsu, uh, as in Korra the Pursuer from, from the Marvel movies. It's like this amazing yeah, actor yeah. has been gotten in to do two or three lines. Yeah. And like you know, this this should be a very very big deal. Um, didn't really feel like a very big deal. It's just no. like you know, hey, um, hey, Mister Emperor, sir, I'm here to look after those four human people over there in the corner. Um, I've got to get him back home now, if you don't mind. <laughs> and uh, he's just like, no, we will be executing the humans as we cannot afford to let one of them be taken over by the parasites, or our entire planet will be destroyed. The sequence. And Mark's just like, okay. I guess we're fighting then. Yeah. And yeah, oh. Mark just kind of breaks him out and follows him back to the shuttle. I like that jump cut, honestly, where it's a, uh, we get an explanation of what the starfish creatures are and why they're a bad thing and why the astronauts need to die. And Mark's just like, huh. And then it cuts to them running like hell across as him flying all the astronauts back as they're getting chased by Martians on, on horseback, basically. And like, you know what? No, I like that joke. It's Martian like, cavalry. Yeah, we don't see how he got them out or what he did. It's possibly he just picked them up and ran because that seems like the kind of thing that a Mark would have done. But we don't need to see it. It's just this is the dumb shit yeah. Mark gets into. The sequence, I want to get back into the sequence for a second because I feel that these would make a really good D&D monster or just a really good mm-hmm. RPG monster in something like Monster of the Week because the idea is that they're a creature that takes control of some sort of humanoid, some sort of living species and mind controls them. And they just then start breeding and breeding and breeding using the, I guess the corpses 
genetic material and that creates this hive mind which then destroys whatever species of they're on and spreads them out to the galaxy. And the reason that the Martians aren't affected is that they are able to shape change so that the sequence can't actually latch onto them, but humans can't. So that's a bit of a problem for the Martians. That's why they can't let the humans go away because if any one of them has been infected by a sequid, that's gonna spell doom, not just for Mars, but probably the whole solar system. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. What I'd love about them is if they're kind of like a little bit of a mix between, I guess, a mind flayer and a mimic for for D&D terms, where they're this mind controlling species that can look like anyone. And there are hive species as well that aren't interested. Like if you'd get touched by this thing, you're infected. It's like it's that that in, insidious. It's like, that's a great monster. That's a great terrifying thing for a, a group of role players or a party of adventurers to face because they can't even get near this thing. They got to run every single time because even a touch will doom everyone. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't uh, So it doesn't go well because no. as they're making their escape, uh, we do in fact get a little bit of a cut of um, one of the astronauts. Uh, you know, they've all made it into the shuttle and they're all strapped into their seats in the cockpit and getting ready to, to take off and lift away. And uh, one of the astronauts kind of looks down at his uniform a little bit and then looks back at the others, and then he notices something about the American flag that's sewn onto the, yeah. the, the sleeve of their astronaut suit, and then he looks down at his own one, and then it shapeshifts to have the uh, the 50 stars. Yeah. The corner of the American flag has got the 50 stars, um, shape shifts to the right side, the correct side, and you realize, oh, okay, the uh, the infection's about to make it to Earth, and then um, as they're flying away, you see a tidal wave of these sequid things um, descending on the Martian cavalry, about to kill them all. Yep. And you realize that, damn, Mark, you've just doomed the Martian race. Mm-hmm. Good on you, Mark. Basically, way to go. Thanks, Mark. It's almost played like a joke. But I feel like yeah, this entire Martians, Martian scene, um, I feel, was should have been played as a very, very big deal. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it was very brief and very cutaway. And, you know, Mark got into the throne room of the Emperor of Mars, you know, which should have been a huge deal, like huge deal. But you know where Mark showed even a bit more emotion? When? Was when he actually finally made it home. And he almost walks in on his parents having sex. And he just looks (laughs) so, so awkward about it. He showed more emotion after almost walking in on his parents having sex. He (laughs) did not. He walked in to find them fully clothed and sitting on the couch. But he he almost, he he heard the noises. (laughs) He knew what they were doing. Okay. We, I think we haven't established, we haven't established well enough that on this show, Nolan and Debbie love to fuck. They love to fuck. There's something about, like, if they have an opportunity, they will fuck. That's just, there's a reason why Mark exists in the first place. It's like, I don't know, like, I feel that Viltrumites give out this pheromone or something. I don't know if this is actually in the comics, but yeah, human women seem to be- it's the moustache, man. It's the moustache. I don't know. There's enough women into Mark that I feel that it's something to do with Viltrumite energy going out there. It's big Viltrumite energy. I believe it's the moustache. It, it could be the moustache. Sure. I mean, it's definitely something to do with the moustache. Sure, he's hot and all. And that moustache. It's just, oh my God. Well, anyway, anyway, now that Mark is back, he goes to give, he gives, 
he gives Amber a rock from Mars as a souvenir, which he specifically went back after everyone else, after he got the shuttle away, he goes back and grabs this rock as a souvenir and just goes, hey guys, you don't mind if I take this to you? It just flies away again. And oh, he does the stupidest thing that the superheroes always do, where he tells these specific truths without actually giving any way information. Like, well, mostly boring. Encountered some local wildlife, met the king, kind of a jerk. Oh, but I did actually help people. Not sure how grateful they were, but whatever. Huh. That is a strangely non-specific story. Check it out. I got you something. Ooh, I've always wanted one of these. It's, um, ugh, what do they call them? A... Rock. Rock? And not just any rock. A Earth rock. It's an Earth rock. Whoa, even more impressive. Yeah, just make sure you never show it to any geologist or anyone who knows anything about rocks. They might tell you something crazy. Well, thank you for the beautiful, regular earth rock. He he feels like he's in this wacky, screwball teen superhero comedy, and he's not. He just, he he as a character definitely feels like he's like, I'm happy-go-lucky, I have superpowers, hooray, I'm doing fun things. And meanwhile, we're knowing that his parents' marriage is falling apart and his dad's a murderer. It's, oh, it's so great. Yeah, yeah. But that's, by and large, essentially um, all the real substantial uh, material from the episode. There's yeah. a couple of other small interesting bits and pieces. Um, there's there's no know, great the, deal. The sole surviving, um, yeah, there's like the sole surviving Mauler twin um, yep. that sacrificed the other Mauler twin to, you know, survive the last episode. Um, he manages to find himself an empty warehouse or an empty giant, like, you know, garage somewhere and sets up a lair. And uh, you get to see just how intelligent um, the Mauler twins are. And how tough too, actually. Because we see him yeah. start to draw blood from himself because he starts to go into the, the recloning process of making a new twin. And he really has to get this drill to even break his skin. It's like a full-on, full-strength industrial drill and he has to go full volume i guess full speed just to even get a drop of blood out of him mm. um but yeah so you definitely get a um the insight into this guy's level of intelligence as uh he sets up all this equipment all this robotic stuff and all this electronic stuff and then on top of that he also knows a lot about chemistry or biology as mm. well as he messes with the dna that that's within the blood that he drew from and like uh you know does some kind of accelerated growth procedure um, using, to cr- start creating a clone that's going to be ready. Yeah, yeah. It's starting, um, you know, so he's going to, he's basically growing himself a, um, a fresh twin. And uh, he's doing it in incredibly short order. Like, mm. um, it's really you know, quick. we don't know exactly how long this took him. Um, well, probably two weeks. But, you know, the, like I said, the, yeah, I was going to say the time span of this episode was around about the two week mark. So, in less than two weeks, he's going to be, he's at least started, you know, we don't see the, the finished product, but, you know, he's at least started to um, create himself a fully fresh uh, new twin to to go on adventures with or, you know, crime sprees with. <laughs> I like the idea um, of these two going on adventures together. It's like, la-di-da, we're off to save the world today. No way, we're going to kill everyone. We're going we're gonna to prove to the yeah. president that we're a threat. This is our adventure for the day. Yeah. And the only other thing that we really see, um, 
Well, there are two more things that we see that, you know, yeah, there's, there's a couple of other things. Was, um, we see Robot um, yep. at the very end of the episode. We see Robot approaching um, somebody that's in like a big old stasis tank or like fluid tank. Or a test um, tube. A very uh, disfigured, yeah, like a very disfigured and um, physically uh, disabled individual um, that's, you know, floating in a uh, floating in a tank or a test tube. Um, and he, the robot kind of kneels down and holds forwards the DNA that he, uh, that he collected. And, uh, you hear robot's voice coming out of the tank with the person inside it saying phase one can begin. Ooh, what is phase one? And here's, here's another thing about this episode that we have had received an answer to the question about the Damien Darkblood and Nolan killing the, the Guardians, that, that's been wrapped up enough that mm. there's no ongoing investigation into it. And now they just give us another question, which is, what the fuck is Robot doing? Mm-hmm. And, and um, the only other thing that happens was in the post credit screen. Um, Debbie, at home, is just packing away some laundry and, you know, putting away some folded towels or clothes in that same closet. Classic Debbie behavior. Yeah, where Damien Darkblood had left his notebook. And um, the camera zooms in on the notebook, and, you know, the ominous music plays, showing that the notebook is still there. But, you know, oh, well, Debbie failed her passive perception (laughs) check or whatever, or failed her investigation check and didn't find it yet. But now we know that the notebook is in there, and for all we know, that notebook contains some very, very incriminating stuff that... uh, might um might just get Nolan in a lot of trouble with Debbie, you know? Well, I feel that that's a case of like mother like son because Mark isn't great at the um the perception checks either, otherwise the the astronauts wouldn't have been captured in the first place. It's he's he's not great mm. at being a superhero and noticing stuff. He has a very low wisdom score, I feel, if we're using D and D terms for Mark. He's not great at empathy and figuring out what's going on with other people either. However, one of the things I want to go back to just the fact that Mark's on this little escort mission for the space shuttle, because I feel that that's something that, that you can use in a game that player characters mm-hmm. are usually a lot more powerful than the, the regular NPCs in whatever game you're running. Like that's why they're heroes in the most part. And I know it's one of the most annoying things in a video game to do an escort mission where you've got to keep an NPC alive and they're always going to go the wrong oh, way. But do it in a, worst. Do it in a, an RPG, like a tabletop RPG. It's even better because they can talk. They can actually talk to the NPC. And yes, they can be annoying, but at least you can converse with them. So I like that idea that you're set on a mission. Like you send the group on a mission of, you just have to protect these people. And you know, as soon as that happens, they're going to get a ton of stuff thrown at them. But it's going to be fun. It can be just protecting a caravan. It can be escorting an ambassador to another nation. It can be the classic Shadowrun technique of here is a um, here is somebody that you need to extract and take to another location. That's that's it. Just that escort nature of it, I feel, is a good. This is a good way of doing it because you do have these distractions that you put in front of the players. You have well, he wants to check his phone. He's got his own personal stuff going on. This is when you hit them with stuff. This is when you hit them with an encounter. This is when you have to make them make the decisions. And yeah, I mm-hmm. like, I, I think that's a useful way of looking at it 
of um, these are some ideas you can use in your games from just a tiny little plot in the episode. Yeah, I think that kind of is a little bit adjacent to, uh, you know, a an element out of this episode that I would uh, like to utilize in an RPG, and that just being the passage of time external to the perspective of the players, you know? Mm. Um, and this is a conversation that, you know, I know that has been had around our table a number of times, uh, is that the world continues to revolve whilst the players are doing their thing, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, all the importance, all the important events of the world don't necessarily wait for the adventurers to be awake and traveling and ready for them to happen to them, you know? Uh, there are plenty of important events in the world that are going to happen at a certain time and at a certain place. And if the player is not there for that, then these events happen without them. And, you know, these uh, these things will have their own impact as a result. And the, that might be an impact that is felt by the players as a result later on, you know? Mm. Like, um, you know, the player group might be, you know, it might be something as simple as, hey, the party group is presented with a choice of do they want to go to this place? and uh, try to save the princess or do you want to go to this place and do you want to try and eliminate the orc tribe that's um, been raiding the city um, and save the save the village or whatever um, you know if they go this way and save the princess see you later village you know a bunch of peasants wiped out or if they go to the, the village and you know protect it and eliminate the orc tribe that's raiding it over this way the princess is kidnapped and the party are now declared criminals by the evil vizier who um, has taken over in place of her. I've only you done know? that. So I've done something like that with one of my groups where they were given two options. Both paths would give them the information they required for the, the campaign to continue. They didn't know at the time that they could only pick one path. And it was a case mm-hmm. of, well, whichever one you want to go on, that's fine. And at the end of it, like, cool. So we'll go back and they're like, yeah. You missed out. That path is closed now. Mm-hmm. And just that little bit of, oh, oh, this has, this actually has consequences. Our, our choices matter. And mm-hmm. it was, it was hell for me because I had to plan both plot paths, not knowing where they were going to go, but it, it was worth it in the end. Oh, for sure. Um, I think like there was a, uh, there, there is, um, a feature that I want to use in one of my games at some point um, in one of the ongoing campaigns I'm running hmm. where, you know, um, lichens or werewolves yeah. may be at their most powerful when there is a full moon. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the players might come into knowledge of this uh, this information. They might realise that it's in their best, best interests to deal with a lichen threat before the next full moon. But if they dither, and if there's no sense of urgency there, and enough days pass, all of a sudden a bunch of super steroided, jacked up, lichen, terrible monstrosities are going to attack, and uh, the players are going to have to bear the bear the brunt of that. You know, this is what I love. Just the passage of time. It's like the passage of time is important, and that was demonstrated in this episode because you know Mark disappeared for the better part of two weeks, yeah, and all this other stuff just kept happening while he was gone. You know, Debbie finding out these things about Nolan, Damien Darkblood getting further along in his investigation, then getting exercised to hell, um, the new Guardians, you know, struggling to 
really come together as a team in a unit and Rex still being an arsehole. I don't think that's going to change oh, no matter God. how much time passes. Rex has no um, self-awareness whatsoever. He will never change. Yeah. So, you know, passage of time is an important thing for the, the tabletop games and that'll that'll definitely be a feature, I think, that is always worked into into my tabletop games for sure. Well, speaking of things in your tabletop games, every week we pick a character from the episode. We can only pick them once um per show we pick them and talk about why we want to bring them into our game whether it's as a player character or as an npc and mike i want to know who are you going to pick for this episode given how much we did not enjoy the episode overall (laughs) definitely the emperor of mars yes and um the reason i would pick the emperor of mars is because and this is conjecture, right? Because we didn't really get much out of the, out of this episode as nope. far as what this guy, what this guy's capabilities are. But the the Martian race are a race of race of shapeshifters. Mm-hmm. He's the emperor of a, of a race of shapeshifters, which means that in my mind, he's got to be the most goddamn amazing shapeshifter there has ever been and ever will be. Um, you know, not only could he transform into other people, he could transform into animals, he could transform into inanimate objects. I imagine he could probably even transform into gaseous shapes and Ooh. forms and things like that. You know, like, I imagine that he would just be the most amazing and greatest shapeshifter imaginable. And, um, you know, I would, I would very happily use him as an NPC yeah. in my tabletop games. And, uh, you know, after I introduce him, the party would absolutely never know if they're safe from the Emperor of Mars, because <laughs> he could be anything. He could have shapeshifted into, you know, the tavern keeper. He could have shapeshifted into one of the serving wenches. He could have shapeshifted into the dog in the corner. He could be a, he could have shapeshifted into one of the goddamn bar stools. They would never know. He could always be there. He could be anything, <laughs> you know. Emperor of Mars is my pick. I love that idea, and I would specifically keep him as the Emperor of Mars, even if Mars has just been completely wiped out. Even if he's not actually an Emperor anymore, he would always be the Emperor of Mars requests you, and it's this dog sitting there wagging its tail, and you follow the dog out into the alley, and he turns into the guy and's like, hey, I need to talk to you. <laughs> it's just, oh, I love it. I love it. That's fantastic. Oh, sure. What about you? Which character would you pick? Well, we're not going to see him anymore in the series, so I thought I would pick Damien Darkblood. Because I, again, I always tend to pick characters that can work as PCs or NPCs. And I love Damien Darkblood as a fantasy campaign. I feel that if it's D&D, he's going to be like a tiefling or a cambion because he's got that devilish heritage. I really like that idea of a... He's almost a demonic paladin, if, again, using the D&D terminology, because he believes very strongly in right and wrong. There is right and there is wrong, and it's black and white to him. And that partly becomes because he's a demon, because he comes from hell and he knows what is wrong and he knows what is right. And he will not see any shades of gray in that, in anything really, which I like the idea, particularly as an opportunity to play that character in a party because either he's going to clash with everyone or he's eventually going to come around. I think he works a little bit better as an NPC because he would be someone that would be investigating the party. And like we saw with Nolan, he's someone you don't want to piss off. He is someone that can take your little group of adventurers and come back for more. He's not one that you're going to get on the wrong side of. So they do have to kind of tread carefully, but they do also know that he has this code of honor 
that he's not going to try and grab them when they're sleeping. He's not going to go without evidence. So if they can hide the evidence or if they're being framed, they can prove their innocence and they can kind of turn him against other people who they know are bad. But as long as they, they're innocent, which most adventuring parties are not, um, they can keep him off their back. So I love Damien Darkblood. I'm really disappointed that that's kind of it for him as a... Imagine, imagine how good a Damien Darkblood NPC involvement would be for when you've got one of those edgelord uh, griefing players yeah. that like play the assassin rogue that'll you know kill an innocent person in the town just to be able to steal the candelabra that's worth 12 gold pieces in their house yeah the ones that kill the merchant the ones that kill the merchant to get a better deal and yeah and then damien darkblood shows up and the rogue will start to sweat yeah and he's definitely not influenced by hellboy at all definitely not in any way hellboy who's hellboy i don't know that guy yep anyway Yep. Anyway, that is all from us for this week. Join us next time when we see episode five, That Actually Hurt, uh, of Invincible Season 1. Mike, where can people find you if they're checking you out online and they want to hear your dulcet tones? Come check me out on Twitch. The URL is twitch.tv forward slash doctor underscore chops. That's D-R underscore C-H-O-P-S. Fantastic. And you can find me at on Twitter at Talman, T-A-L-U-M-I-N. Uh, and the podcast is also on there at D-N-D-N-T-V pod. Uh, if you want to, you know, come and talk about the episode that we just talked about. Um, Mike, can you do me a favor? I can, I can try. I, I like doing favors for my mates. Could you be kind to yourself and listeners? Be kind to yourselves until next week. Thanks for listening. Okay. But only because I want to. See us.